grab a Bible, if you would, please, and turn to the book of Acts chapter 2. We're going to have you take out those message notes as well. We're going to give you some fill-ins. Who's a fill-in person? You like to fill? Wow, so many of you. I thought it was like one or two. Uh, no, okay. Uh, guys, we're working on this book called the Book of Acts in the New Testament that traces the origin story of the Christian church, uh, written by a doctor, the good Dr. Luke, uh, the Acts of the Apostles. And last week, we looked at what happened on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended upon the followers of Jesus who were gathered in a building uh, kind of at the top of Jerusalem there in the upper room, they call it, about 120 people received uh, the Holy Spirit. The Christian church was born that day. And it was an amazing experience. The church was established. These are the first fruits of what is a great harvest that's been lasting for almost 2,000 years. A harvest not of vegetables or fruit, but a harvest of people. A harvest of people as folks come into the heart of Christ. And in our passage today, the, this first service is still happening. And so we're going to continue looking at this. We read about, uh, as we ended last week, this crowd of looky-loos, like onlookers, who had started to gather around the Christians. And the reason they gathered was because they heard the Holy Spirit, this mighty rushing wind. And they were like, what's going on over there? What's this ruckus? This ruckus? Turn to your neighbor and say, there was a ruckus. <laughs> they also heard, <laughs> they also heard uh, the Christians speaking to them in their native languages at the same time, and it was rather a miraculous situation. These were blue-collar folks from Galilee. These were the redneck. These were the NASCAR people. Uh, I love NASCAR. <laughs> and so this was miraculous. They were like, what's going on here? This is, doesn't compute. And, and some people in the crowd were like, these folks are drunk. And so, um, so what happens is what we're going to get to today is, is the first sermon is preached. And, and this is another first, okay? On the day of, on a day of firsts, the first church service, the first sermon is given. Now, before we study the sermon, uh, it's going to take me a lot longer to describe the sermon than Peter preached it, which is ironic. Um, so there's three quick background items that are going to help us as we dive into this. The first is that, this, as I said, the speaker is, is Peter. So Peter's the first person to stand up. He's the first to talk. He's the first to come forward, which is not a surprise given Peter, right? Peter's usually in these situations. He's kind of front and center. He's, he's kind of the guy that always is going to rush in. And sometimes, how many of you know, this gets Peter into trouble, okay? We love him because we don't feel like such losers, right, uh, reading about Peter in the Bible. But in this case, actually, we see a changed Peter. He's still Peter, but this is the version of, the Pe of Peter that is filled with the Holy Spirit. So that means that Peter's not talking under his own force of personality or using his own words. In this case, he's talking with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and it's a big change. He's being guided and gifted by the Spirit. And this is actually endemic to the book of Acts. You're going to see a lot of people who step forward from here all the way through the book who are regular folks who are going to do and say things they would never normally do and say because now they have the gift of the Spirit. This is regular Christians now who are empowered by, uh, by the Holy Spirit, and they're going to be led to do things that are incredible, way beyond themselves. And, and by the way, this is a pattern that is still going on. 
on. That, that the, did you know that as, as the apostles and as the Christians in the book of Acts went out into the world and they did these things, so we today, we go out into our world and now we are the empowered believers who do and say things that are beyond ourselves. And this is the Christian life. And this is an encouraging thing. The second thing about the setting is that the audience was entirely Jewish people. All right. This was all Jewish people. Most were full Jewish heritage. There were some uh, converted people in the audience, but this was very monochromatic, very Jewish. And as such, Peter uses a lot of Jewish scripture in this sermon that we're about to read. And this was because the audience that day would have connected to this content. They knew their Bibles. They knew the Old Testament. And so Peter's going to intertwine this. And, um, and we see uh, also, Peter's going to talk about Jesus. Many listening that day were very familiar with Jesus. Remember, Jesus had just left 10 days prior, and he had also been publicly preaching and teaching for three years. So many people knew about Jesus. They had met Jesus listening in the audience. And so this was very much uh, contextually an interesting thing. I doesn't say this, okay? But I just picture when Peter's talking about Jesus, he points to the empty tomb area. And everybody in the audience, location-wise, would have been like, oh, yeah, that's right, that tomb is empty. And this would have been a powerful uh, part of this. Uh, now, whether they'd seen him or not, most people had heard all about the resurrection of Jesus. And so that's, that's kind of evident in, in this message in chapter 2. And then finally, the occasion, as we said last weekend, this is the Pentecost festival. This is one of the most popular times of year in Jerusalem where the Jews are coming from all over to party. This is their harvest season. It's like their Thanksgiving, but it's the, it's the beginning part. They do this at the front end of the harvest, the first fruits of the harvest. And so there's a lot of celebration, and that's why there's such big crowds. Okay, let's, let's get to the sermon now. Verse 14, follow along with me if you can in your Bible. Here's what it says. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now Peter's quoting Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Mm. Okay, let's stop there for a second. This is kind of the first part of the sermon. There's three parts to this sermon. Peter goes right to the question of what's going on here. Remember the crowd is like, what's happening here? And He's saying basically this. It's on your handout. Guys, it's not booze. It's the Bible. All right? It's 9 a.m. Third hour of the day meant 9 a.m. It's too early. It's too early. The bars aren't open yet anyways. And, uh, and so instead, Peter says, the miraculous 
Speaking of your languages, the sound of the wind that you're hearing, this was foretold in our Bibles. What you were witnessing, Peter says, is prophesied by the prophet Joel, and it's happening now. And that's why he quotes, and he finds the exact scripture, Joel 2. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So Peter's like, remember your Bible. So what you're seeing in the upper room, this is that. This is that in our Bibles. Men and women, young and old, rich and poor, everybody in the, everybody's receiving the Spirit. And in the audience, remember they're Jewish, they would have been very familiar with this text. There would have been some head nods like, oh, okay, this is connecting the dots. This is helpful. And that's because Peter knows his audience. Now, when it comes to preaching, by the way, we're going to get to other sermons later in the book of Acts where the gospel is preached, but no scripture is quoted. And that's because when we get to those sermons, the audiences are not Jewish. They're Romans or Gentiles, and they don't know the Bible. They don't know scripture. And so what happens is the preachers in Acts preach the gospel, but they contextualize it to make it understandable to the hearers. And it's absolutely brilliant. And it's something that we learn in preaching school, uh, in seminary and things. We learn to contextualize the gospel. The gospel is good news, but it's not good news if you don't understand it. And it's not good news if you have no idea the context of it. And so you see effective preaching in the book of Acts. More on that later in the series. Now, uh, I want to talk about one other thing here, uh, a, cu- a couple things. Um, we, we read this phrase that Joel says, the phrase is the last days and in the last days. Did you notice that? All right, that can be a head scratcher. The pouring out of the spirit happens in the last days. And this alerts us that the end times are being talked about. And so the pouring out of the Spirit, Pentecost, that's in the last days. But some people read this and they're like, hey, wait a minute. This happened 2,000 years ago from today. And it, Peter says it's the last days. Didn't he kind of miss it? Because, boy, that was 2,000 years ago. The last days that didn't really happen. So this must be a mistake on Peter's part that he's equivocating this event with the last days. And this is the criticism. So, okay, let's talk about that because uh, it's easily solved if we know this simple fact that in the Bible, the last days, that phrase is a time period whose length is unspecified. We don't know how long the last days last. All right. But we do know two things. They begin at the first coming of Jesus and they end at the second coming of Jesus. This is the scriptural understanding, the Bible writers, of the phrase, the last days. So the Bible doesn't tell us how long the last days last. We don't know. But the Bible does tell us the events that comprise its time boundaries. And so that means that the last days, in conclusion, have lasted at least 2,000 years nearly and counting Because it started at the birth of Christ, it flowered at the birth of the church, and in Acts uh, chapter 2, we're reading the birth of the church, and then they end when Christ comes back. The last days end when Christ comes back. Did you know this about the last days? This is interesting. We should know this about the last days. So Joel prophesies that the spirit being poured out is at the beginning part of the last days of this era, this this boundary time. It's the beginning. And then later, as we read the, the quotation in Joel, 
Joel talks about other things going on, like the moon turning to blood and, 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 and the dark, uh, darkness of the sun and the great day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord. Those are events that take place towards the end of the last days. And so what we have here in Acts 2 is a partial fulfillment of Joel 2, not a complete fulfillment. Are you following? Okay, so Peter didn't get it wrong. Not at all, because we're still in the last days, and the Bible is entirely okay with the last days lasting a long time. The Bible writers talk about this. There's other phrases, uh, other usages of the last days, like, for example, in the, in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is another book in the New Testament, and it begins in Hebrews 1. It says, long ago, long ago, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. No. <laughs> It's a different quotation. It says, long ago. You know what? None of that lip, sir, okay? You just calm down. <laughs> I'm just doing a little audience management. Uh, <laughs> teasing. Okay. Uh, long ago, in many, at many times and in many ways, the Lord spoke to us. The Lord spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in the last days... The Lord has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom also he created the universe, the world. And so this idea of the last days is not just Peter and it's not just Joel, it's throughout, it's peppered throughout our New Testament. So we have to get used to that in terms of how we think of that phrase. A lot of us also happen to think that we are in in the last days-ish of the last days, as we consider that we're close to seeing every people group on earth have access to the gospel, I can just tell you I'm very eager to looking forward to Jesus coming back. And can I get an amen? Amen. Okay. Now, also one other thing. Notice this part of the passage that Peter quotes. He ends the quotation with this, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter is quoting Joel. So the question to you real quick, what do you have to do to be saved? Call upon the name of the Lord. Do you have to be water baptized to be saved? Do you have to follow a bunch of laws correctly in order to be saved? Do you have to avoid certain foods in order to be saved? All right. Do you have to root for certain sports teams to be saved? No. Yes? <laughs> What saves a person is calling on the name of the Lord. Anyone calling on the name. What does that mean? It's not just like, oh, well, I, I said Jesus, and so therefore I'm saved. No, no, no. It's not. It has to be genuine, right? It has to be. You have to have faith. Calling on the name of the Lord means you're trusting in Jesus, what Christ has done. It means you're genuinely turning to him. And so uh, more on that in a minute, but this is how Peter flows into the next section. He's now going to answer how you get saved with some more detail by giving the gospel. So effectively, your fill-in is here is the gospel, and Peter presents the gospel. Here's your next couple fill-ins. There's three items in this next part of the sermon. He says that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus was crucified, and Jesus is alive. This is the good news, guys. Jesus is the Lord. He's the Lord of all, and he died for us. He took our place. He paid the penalty of our sin, and he's resurrected. 
He's, he's alive. That tomb is empty. And this is simple. This is powerful. This is life-changing. Here's how Peter does that. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Why is he saying that? Because they were there. You saw, you saw this, you know this. And I could see, I, yeah, this is the part where the audience gets a little sheepish. They're just like, yeah, yeah, you're right, we did. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. There's the resurrection word. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Christ to be held by it. For David says concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, but you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29, brothers, I, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Peter possibly pointing to David's tomb that they all knew. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, i.e. his flesh decay. This God, this Jesus, God raised up. And of all that, we are witnesses. And of all that, we are witnesses. Why could he say this? Because they all saw and knew about the Lord being resurrected. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this and uh, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus that you crucified. Okay, so let's stop there again and, and just pause and reflect because this is kind of an intense part. Peter's not pulling any punches here. Again, this is a Jewish audience, so lots of scripture. But the first part of this, Peter starts out by establishing who Jesus is, that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. The Jews had been waiting for a Messiah. And you may, you may know this about your Bible. Uh, in the first century, there was a heightened sense amongst Jews of sort of messianic, um, messianic anticipation. The Messiah was the anointed one of God to bring long-awaited deliverance to the Israelite people. And Peter says, guys, the Messiah is Jesus. The Messiah you've been waiting for, he's it. And then Peter says something interesting. He says, the reason you know, the proof is you can be sure is that Jesus did signs and wonders and miracles. Look at verse 22. In your midst, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you 
by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that he did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. You saw, you saw Jesus do miracles. I personally believe that in, 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 in the crowd that day, some of the people had been healed by Christ. Some of them had, had experienced the miracle power personally. Some of them had eaten the bread and the fish that had been multiplied. Some of them watched their friends, their kids, their neighbors be healed by Jesus. You see, the ministry of Jesus was very prolific. For three years, right, Jesus was openly, publicly healing. He was traveling around up and down uh, from Galilee, uh, down into Jerusalem, uh, all over the place. And so there was a lot of impact. And so undoubtedly, with the crowd this size that's hearing this sermon, Peter's like, you guys have firsthand knowledge. And this was proof that he was the Messiah. So Jesus himself said this, actually, several times. He talked about his miracles proving he was Messiah. Here's one place. Just to give you a, a scripture, you can look at this later. John 5, 36. This is the Lord talking. He says, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. What does that mean? Jesus is saying, the miracles I'm doing prove that I'm the guy that you've been waiting for. I'm the Messiah. All right? So he's establishing that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter, in his sermon, the next item in his gospel presentation is that, and then Jesus was crucified. Verse 23. Look at that. Look at your Bibles. We got we to do this together, okay? This doesn't work if, you know, this doesn't work. We got to do this together. Verse 23. So this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Jesus, the Messiah, was crucified. And notice Peter adds, and killed. So in other words, Jesus was really dead on the cross. He hadn't just passed out and then got pulled down and put in a tomb and then was revived naturally later because he was never dead. He was killed. All right? He was killed. And it wasn't a rumor. Peter is brilliant. He's addressing the common dismissals of the resurrection that had been floating around had been floating around Jerusalem. And so he's pulling no punches, and he points out that he was really dead. And he also says, and you guys, you guys in the audience, you guys were the ones who kind of did this. You played a part in this. And then he moves right into the resurrection. Jesus is alive. God raised him to life. And then Peter uses um, uh, extensively quotes from, from David, Psalm 16. And this is a psalm that combines the ideas of Messiah and resurrection. And he's saying, he's unpacking this, right? He's connecting the dots. And these are, again, texts that the audience would have been very familiar with. And what he's doing is he's saying, this is all in the Bible. It was all prophesied. It was all in Scripture. It was all laid out for us. And it's also all come to pass in Jesus. He also quotes Psalm 110.1. And he ends this part of the message with David prophetically acknowledging that the Messiah comes from his lineage. And, of course, Jesus came from the lineage of David. Interesting stuff. Very Jewish audience, very Jewish Christian sermon. Yeah, you see this? All right. The last part of the message, let's read this, verse 37. Now, when they had heard this, the people were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And then verse 40, with many other words, so he did preach a long time. It says, you know, this is, this is a proof text for me to preach a long time. Uh, with many other words, many, underline many. Uh, just kidding. He bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So at the beginning of this, it says that this section, it says the people were convicted. They were cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit had convicted them of their sin. What sin were they convicted of? Well, probably a lot, but namely the sin of previous to this day, rejecting Jesus as Messiah. And Peter's just like opening their eyes through the preaching and teaching of the word, through the empowerment of the Spirit. And now the Spirit's falling on the people and they're convicted and they're just like, what do I do? Have you ever been, it says cut to the heart. Have you ever been cut to the heart? Have you ever had that happen where the Holy Spirit will reveal maybe a, a, a pattern of sin or an attitude that's not, not God and you, be, and you become aware of it? You don't have to raise your hand, okay? Uh, <laughs> like, like this is a thing. And, and, and they didn't just leave they ask the question, what shall we do? And this is the last part of the sermon. Peter tells them how to respond. Here's how you respond. That's your fill-in. That's this next section of the message. And then he says, specifically, you have to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and then you will receive the same Holy Spirit the same Holy Spirit that just fell in the upper room that you guys just heard about, that's going to be what happens to you as well. And this is so critical. I want to talk about this for just a second. The response part of the sermon. So a question. Have you ever been in church? Some of you have been in church a while. Have you ever heard a sermon where the pastor will, will, just, will, will talk about some scripture and lay out some Bible knowledge, and then that's it. There's no, it's just like, well, you know, here's, here's what this means. And then you get some information, and then you're walking out of church, and you're like, I don't, I don't really know what to do with that. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> you're like, it happens almost every week. Here, Billy, I hate to break it to you. <laughs> fair, fair. So what's happened is we've gotten information without transformation. But the whole goal of preaching and teaching is transformation. It's transformation by the power of Jesus. And sometimes we pastors actually don't take the sermon far enough. We, we, we leave out some transformation steps, some next steps, some application. But guys, 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 listen, transformation by Christ is the goal. That's why we're here at church. We're here at church for a lot of things. You know, we're here for fellowship. We're here for worship. Uh, maybe we're here for friendship. We're here for, some of you are here for the donuts. Okay, whatever. 
But the primary reason that we're here is, don't, don't forget this ever, is to be transformed by the gospel, is to be changed by the gospel. We don't come to church to get more data. We don't come to church to get, to get just a laugh and a, oh, make me feel good and make me laugh, make me cry in 20 minutes, Billy, tell me bye-bye. That's not why we're here. We're here to be transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. That's why we gather. That's what we want. We Okay, I want to have fun. You want to have fun. But what I really want, what I want way more to have fun is I want Jesus to transform my heart and I want my life to look more and more like him. And I know that's what you want too. And so we come to church to, to learn what the scriptures say and then apply those scriptures with the power of the spirit. And here Peter shows us that. This is the model of preaching and teaching. This is the first church service. And so there should be a, how do I respond? Even if it's just a little response, even if it's just a little bit of progress, it's just a quarter inch step forward. But imagine if you took a quarter inch step forward every single, you know, so to speak. Uh, and it's like, you did that for decades, man, you'd be miles ahead. You'd be looking more like Jesus so much by the end of your life because you're taking these little transformative steps again, by grace, by the power of the spirit. And so this is why we're here. This is what, this is what we're doing here. And so when the people ask, what do we do? This is the question that should come from all of us all the time. Well, what do I do about this? And what do I do now? Have you ever asked that? I don't know. I don't know what to do. I don't know. Preacher, tell me. Okay. So he does. He calls them. He calls them into a choice. He calls them to a next step, to an action. Remember, this is the book of Acts. This is the book of actions. This isn't the book of information, the book of info. This isn't the book of... Okay, I'll stop. This is just action. And the action is repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. In that order. All right, I want to talk about this for a second. Uh, order of operations is important. Who's, who are my math people in here? Ah, Bruce Walker and a few others. Anybody had calculus in here? You guys don't, you're so shy. Yeah. So in, in, in math, in math, order of operations is really important or else you get the wrong answer. And, and so it is in, 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 in our Bibles, especially here. Notice that baptism happens after repentance. And that's because baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. Repentance is turning and facing the Lord. It's changing your mind about the Lord. Involved in repentance is faith in Jesus. And then, and then baptism happens as an outward symbol of the inward work of grace. Now, this verse, though, on baptism here has brought a bit of some division amongst Christians, well-meaning Christians, about the order of operations. I, I for, for one, I was, I was brought to Christ, uh, as a lad, about a 16-year-old lad, I was a lot skinnier. Uh, I'm cuter now, though, I think. Um, don't, don't underestimate how hard that is to say with a straight face, okay? <laughs> um, I was saved in a church that didn't necessarily hold to that same order of operations. They believed in a theological position called baptismal regeneration, have you heard this phrase, baptismal regeneration? 
This is a theological term that says a person is saved or regenerated by the Holy Spirit through water baptism. So in a baptismal regeneration church or denomination, a person can profess faith in Christ and receive the gospel by faith, but doesn't actually receive salvation until their act of water baptism is complete. And this verse is often quoted to support that view because Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And so the argument is that baptism brings the forgiveness of sins. Baptism causes the remissions of sins to actuate in a person, which then brings salvation. And the reason some Christians believe that is because of this little word for, F-O-R, is translated ostensibly in order that or so that. So be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in order that your sins are forgiven. The problem with that is this little word for is a tricky word. In the Greek, the original uh, manuscripts in, in the New Testament are the ancient Greek, Koine Greek. The word for four is the word ice. Turn to your neighbor and say, ice, ice, baby. <laughs> now you know. <laughs> it's, it's E-I-S. It's not I-C-E. E-I-S, or uh, the Greek letters. Epsilon, iota, sigma. And that word can also be translated because of. So let me, let me break this down. When I say the soldier received a medal for bravery, the soldier received a medal for bravery, does this mean that the soldier got a medal in order to become brave? No. It means the soldier got a medal because of his prior bravery. So baptism happens then not so that your sins can be forgiven, but because of the fact that your sins are already forgiven. And so this is the view that Redeemers takes. We, we are not a baptismal regeneration community. We are, what, we are what's called a believer's baptism community. Believer's baptism simply means you're baptized because you have believed. It's, water baptism is for Christians. It doesn't make you a Christian. It reveals that and symbolizes that you already are a full-fledged Christian. What saves you? What saves you? We already covered this. Calling on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord. So baptism doesn't save us. So uh, that's we need to say that from time to time. And we respect and love our Christian brothers and sisters who come from baptismal regeneration contexts. We just lovingly disagree. And we like to keep salvation not attached to any human activity, okay, even a physical activity. We say, no, bapt uh, salvation, rather, is, is, is in the hands of the Lord. Okay, so that's our position. 
Um, so let's look at this real quick. 3,000 people that day came to Christ and were baptized. Remind me when we get to Israel. So next year we're going to Israel. There's, I think, a bunch of us going. And remind me to show you when we get to Jerusalem where I think all of these people got water baptized. 3,000 baptisms is a lot. Remember, this is Jerusalem, which is on top of a mountain, and it's pretty dry. Where did they get all the water? Where did they get all this water? Plus, it would have taken a long time. Uh, remember last year when we were at River Forks? I think we did 40 or 50 baptisms, and it took a long time. You guys took a long time. Far too long. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> we got to speed this up. But imagine if it were, imagine if it were like 3,000. Wow. They were out there. I mean, the apostles must have been like, man, I need to take a break. I got up. My arm's tired, you know. My arm fell asleep. Now, that would have been awesome. That's a great problem to have. So remind me to share with you the theory, the predominant theory of where did they get all that water? Where did this happen? That'll be fun. That'll be fun. So, okay, in terms of us, I'd love for you to take out this response card that was in on your chair, hopefully, when you came in, because there is a response to this sermon that was originally given, and I want to pattern today's response off of this and there, and so there's just two options. I've decided. There's some of you that have not said yes to Jesus, that you have not yet called upon the name of the Lord. And you're ready. You're ready to say yes. You're ready to cross the line of faith. You're ready to say, I receive you by faith, Jesus. Or maybe you, you had a faith at one point and you've walked away. Uh, life happens and, and you got just pulled off the path and you're here and you're back and you're like, okay, I, I need to come back to Christ. Uh, so what you can do to respond is just check that box, that first box. I said yes today to a relationship with Jesus for the first time, or if it's a recommitment, whatever. Nobody, nobody follows directions anyway. Just put it down. <laughs> just put it down. And guys, do this. Do this right now. Pull the pen out and do it right now. I just encourage you. I've been praying for you this whole week that the Lord would stir faith in your heart and you would just say, yes, it's time. I've got to serve the Lord. I've got to, you know, I've got to repent. I've got to, I've got to turn to Jesus. And he's been drawing you and he's been, and you may not have all your questions answered. It's okay. It's okay. But you know enough to know that the Lord is the Lord and he is, he is risen and he paid for your sin and he loves you and he's drawn you by grace. Uh, others of you have already believed, but you've not been water baptized. And so we've been talking about this, uh, the, the church in the park Sunday, which is in about a month. It's an awesome time. We have one service. Everybody brings lawn chairs. The whole church is gathered. It's the one time we can all gather as one church and it's at 10, at 10 a.m. And then right after we, we do a bunch of baptisms in the river. The church redeemers has been doing this for years. It's a beautiful thing. And this is a perfect opportunity for you to take that step, to mark that down on your response card, and then you can just put your name and a real phone number, please. Uh, I have to say this. <laughs> or a real email. <laughs> I, okay, so the last time we did this, I said, please don't put a fake email down, and still four of you did. So <laughs> please don't. And uh, I love you. I love you, but stop. Stop doing this. I love you. Put this down, and then one of our team will follow up. You. We have a, a short baptism teaching to go over with you to make sure that you understand the significance, that you're identifying with Christ, 
in the waters of baptism, you're publicly declaring your faith, and this is a step of obedience. And so those are your responses. Many of you have already done both of these, and so your response really is to just pray for and encourage everyone around you to take those next steps. All right, so um, guys, this is it. This is the end of the sermon, and um, we're going to just close in some prayer, and then when you're done... Uh, with our last song, and as you're exiting in a few minutes, you can take this card and then drop it in the basket. The ushers will have the basket there uh, by the doors, and then we can we can go forward. How's that sound? All right, let's bow our heads, please. So, Father, we thank you so much for for bringing us here today to have some time to study the very first sermon in the Christian church. What a what a treat! And Lord, I thank you so much that the goal of all of preaching and teaching is to transform us and to change us into the image and likeness of Jesus. And I'm praying that, that each one of us would take steps, regardless of where we are. I'm praying, Lord, especially for those who need to take the step of salvation, to take the step of receiving Christ formally. I'm asking you to give that faith to people as a gift and help them to have the courage to say yes to you. Also, for those who... Uh, are, are being stirred to take the step of water baptism. We know that it doesn't save us, Lord, but we also know that it's an important step of identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And when we're down under the waters of, of the Umqua River for just a brief moment, we can identify and experience your presence in a way that's uh, unrepeatable in any way. Lord, help us to take that step as well. And for all of us, Jesus, we love you and we want you and we just pray that we, Lord, could all just incrementally move more and more towards you. God, I thank you so much for every person here. Bless everyone that's listening, both here and, and online. And we, we just pray these things now in your beautiful name, your holy name, the name that is above all other names, the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Amen.